Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Matika Wilbur set out on an ambitious journey more than a decade ago to show the beauty and modern context of all Native American tribes. Now the completed work, some 400 pages long, is out, and we'll hear from Matika about what people can expect to see. And a little later, we'll hear from a content creator about how the ban on TikTok in Montana shuts down a creative connection to her audience. That's all coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is piling on to conservative backlash against the retail giant Target over its pride collection, including tuck-friendly swimwear. And to South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports, she's criticizing the company for donating to a Native-led nonprofit. Governor Noem is joining calls to boycott the company by pointing to donation it has made to Indian Collective, a social justice organization in Rapid City that calls for returning the Black Hills to the Lakota. In an appearance on Fox and Friends Wednesday morning, Noam said the group is anti-American. And this is a very extreme organization that's raising these dollars from nonprofits such as Target and going forward and buying land and using it to infiltrate our American way of life and our value system. Noam says the group wants to shut down Mount Rushmore. It's kind of madness that we're in this era that efforts to fight for social justice are being villainized. That's Nick Tilson, the president of Indian Collective, the group Noam is criticizing. He says Mount Rushmore is a symbol used to obscure indigenous history in the United States. If we're going to achieve racial justice and a reckoning and a healing in this country, the only way to do that is to tell the true history of this country. And I think that in the future, Mount Rushmore could be a place that that happens. Target Corporation has not returned requests for comment. 24 hours after Noam's appearance on Fox and Friends, the term-limited governor sent out a message through a Republican fundraising text bank linking to her political action committee. I'm Lee Strupinger in Rapid City. Alaska is mourning the loss of an Inupiaq artist who wanted to leave a legacy for future generations. To learn about the history and culture of Alaska natives, as KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, he leaves behind many contemporary art fans who loved his carvings, sculptures, and paintings. Joe Sinungatuk was born in Wales into a traditional Inupiaq life of hunting and fishing. He later studied art at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the San Francisco Arts Institute. As a young man, Sanungatuk fought against producing commercial art aimed at tourists, which at the time was the only market available for Native artists. Instead, he used his art to tell stories about his Inupiaq culture and its struggles to survive in a modern world. His wife Martha says his pieces weren't always pretty, but they had a lot to say. There's boards of people that just want to make pretty paintings. I know he is one of a kind that could not just create something that people admired, but something that will last for hundreds of years. 
Sanangatuk was a student of indigenous art the world over. In an interview with Alaska Public Media's Lori Townsend, he said the ancestors of Native peoples used art to tell stories. The original purpose of them were to give birth to an idea, to a dance, to a ceremony that would celebrate a new life. Most recently, Sanungatuk was an elder in residence at Alaska Pacific University, where you could often find him carving and talking with students about Native culture. Sanungatuk said his culture was inspiration for all his work, and although his life was far from smooth, he once said cutting into soft wood with a sharp blade felt like a knife sliding through butter, a feeling he enjoyed all his life. I'm Rhonda McBride. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education Sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration ends July 18th at NIEA.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to the National Humanities Medal winning radio show and podcast, Native America Calling. Almost a decade ago, Native photographer Matika Wilbur embarked on an ambitious project to photograph tribal members of 562 federally recognized nations. It was a pursuit to counteract stereotypes and showcase diversity within Native America. And after logging 600,000 plus miles to photograph and interview communities from Alaska to Florida, the project is finally complete and available on bookshelves. Today we'll talk with Matika Wilbur about Project 562, and coming up later in the hour we'll hear from a Native filmmaker and TikTok creator about the recent TikTok ban in Montana. If you have a question for Matika or a comment about Project 562, give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. A disclaimer, the publisher of Project 562, 10-Speed Press, is a division of Penguin Random House Books, which is an underwriter for Native America Calling. With that, allow me to introduce our guest today, Matika Wilbur. She's speaking with us from the Tulalip Reservation in Washington. She's a photographer, author of Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America, and co-host of All My Relations podcast. She's Swinomish Grand Tulalip. Matika, thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm real happy to be here. <laughs> Well, we're happy to have you. And let me begin by congratulating you on this groundbreaking new book. What an enormous effort. <laughs> yeah, it's massive. It's uh, 416 pages. I wanted it to be 420 pages, <laughs> sacred number, <laughs> but they, um, <laughs> oh, there we go. My okay. publisher, yeah, my publisher didn't think so. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it, um, 
Yeah, it has people from uh, uh, represented from about 220 different people, about 350 tribes represented since, you know, many of our people are more than one tribe. And um, it's from my collection, Project 562, from the time that I spent visiting uh, over 500 tribes in the United States. Well, I appreciate your publisher sent us a, a copy, just a, a press copy. To, and I went, I, I looked at every picture. I went through it page by page. I just loved uh, just so many great images, so many people, amazing faces, amazing communities. Now, Matika, you began this journey more than 10 years ago. And now that the work is completed, is this what you initially envisioned? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I um, I initially wanted to put together a book that represented all 562 tribes, and um, I didn't really think to myself how many pages that book would be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I first started this project, uh, you know that right now the book is like I said, it's it's six pounds. It's like a little book baby that I had, and and um, if I want to include every person that I photographed and all the tribes that I went to, you know, it, it would just be more heavy and bigger than, than was physically possible. So I, um, I'm going to have to do volumes of the book. Yeah. Because I photographed about 1200 people for this project. So does that mean that you will provide a, a second edition with more photos in the future? Well, that's dependent upon the publisher and the publishing companies and how well the book does, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll see. To be determined. Okay. Now, you sold everything in your apartment in Seattle. You started a Kickstarter campaign. I mean, you just went all in on this 100%. Did you ever have any doubts that these sacrifices would pay off? Um, yeah, so, you know, the book, Project 562, I started the project because I... Uh, was a teacher at the tribal school on my res. I, I, I am formally trained as a photographer. I have done several projects. This is my fourth long, long form documentary project. Um, but I, at one, at some point was asked to come back and work with my community until I up and teach photography to the kids here, which then led to me starting a nonprofit that taught photography in several different communities and filmmaking and music. We taught steel pans and uh, you know, brought the arts back to the public schools and a lot of tribal schools around here in Washington. And it was during that time that I was tasked with um, developing a curriculum that could represent, um, that we could teach to Indigenous students that are learning about visual literacy about themselves. And of course, the representation of ourselves was very uh, uh, Excuse us, folks. I think we've had a brief technical difficulty while speaking with Matika Wilbur. Matika, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can hear you now. We're okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, well, that's interesting then. So you were um, a teacher and you had uh, a lot of photography experience. And the the introduction of the book I, I found really compelling. And, and you describe just, you know, kind of how you came upon this I, this whole project and you had some ceremony and then even there were some situations even there with students and um, just having had interactions with, with non-native journalists. And it really, really set the tone of what you, what inspired you to do this work. And it, it was kind of a tough read because you, you went through some tough things with some students uh, before you got started in this. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's uh, basically, that's what I was just going to explain right before I got cut off there. But the, um, <laughs> okay. the, uh, 
while I was teaching and I was, you know, I was given the task of developing curriculum for our Native students. And it was during that time that we came to realize that Native people are terribly underrepresented in public curriculum, right? Most of our students are not represented in a post-1900 context. And, you know, that extinction narrative or to be made invisible is incredibly damaging to the psyche of Native youth and to the psyche of, of um of our society really at large, right? Because we've been perpetuating an American historical amnesia that celebrates notions like pioneering and westward expansion and manifest destiny. And, um, you know, we've done it all to uh, ease America of any moral alarm, right? Like the way we've retold Thanksgiving or celebrated Columbus Day or told stories about Sacagawea and Pocahontas, both of whom were women who experienced sexual assault and, you know, were a part of really one might consider like the slave trade. Um, you know, we've created um, stories about indigenous people to celebrate white heroism instead of the real stories of what have happened to our, to our people, the real stories of the land uh, that our people have been dispossessed of or the real stories of the American genocide. And instead of those telling those stories, we've told a whole different narrative that, um, is is used to make Native people feel um, like they're less than. And that certainly happens in public schools. And so when I was tasked with this project of putting together a curriculum that represents Indigenous people for our own people, I started looking for textbooks and images and stories that I could use, and there wasn't enough content to create a whole book or to create a whole year's worth of content unless, you know, because this is uh, pre-Instagram, pre-TikTok, uh, pre, like, uh, the social networking where we had access to a lot of people. And, you know, if you're going to the encyclopedia or Yahoo, there just wasn't enough. So I, you know, went back to the elders in my community and to the principal of my uh, school and said, there just isn't, you know, it's just not possible. I, I'll have to go make it. And they said, well, go make it then. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's really, you know, what brought me to working on this project. And, um, you know, initially I thought, well, I'll just photograph tribes in Washington. And then I, we thought to ourselves, well, what, how are we going to teach kids about what's happening in the Dakotas or in Montana or with, with you know, the, the birth of American democracy? We have to talk about Haudenosaunee people. And, you know, so I said, okay, well, I'll go to the northern states. And then, <laughs> and then it's like, well, no, we can't really do that. We, ha we have to talk about you know, what happened with the Trail of Tears, and it has to be from an intimate, personal perspective, you know, because we know that, like, numbers and statistics are interesting, but we know that personal stories are what stick with people. And so I tried really hard uh, when I was constructing this book to, to put together a collection of personal stories and personal narratives to humanize the reality uh, of boarding schools, of colonization, uh, of what's happening with uh, MMIW, you know, the illegal annexation of Hawaii, uh, you know, and sort of uh, create some perspective from an indigenous perspective, but from a personal perspective and how that impacts our lives. Now, so you went all in, you got, you got the okay to do this project. And then the first native community you visited was in Northern California. And you described that you just kind of winged it. You didn't have a formal presentation. You didn't have handouts. What was the reaction there and in other communities when you walked in and you said, hey, I want to photograph you folks? Yeah, well, fortunately, you know, um, and Indigenous people and a lot of the Native people that I encountered were very um, 
were very kind to me and patient with me <laughs> as a young person trying to figure out, you know, how to do this work. I, I, when I launched the project, I, you know, I initially went to institutions asking for support and several of them just laughed at me and told me, you know, <laughs> Masika, it's, um, it's not realistic, you know, like there are photographers and people who have tried to visit all the tribes. It's going to be really hard. You're going to need a lot of money. You're a woman. You shouldn't travel alone, you know, <laughs> and I, I wasn't able to get financial support. So I turned to crowdfunding to Kickstarter and uh, I was able to raise enough money for my first year on the road. And so it all happened very fast. I launched the Kickstarter and then, you know, within a month I'd raised enough money and was moving out of my apartment and living in my car. In fact, the principal of my school called me and said, are you quitting your job? Because <laughs> I see on the internet here that it, it says that you want to go take this photo adventure, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so I quit my job and I, and I ended up on the road and, um, and uh, I didn't, I, I got in my car, I was all packed up and I, and then I was like, where should I go? <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. and, and so I headed for the first tribe in Northern California that was closest to me. And that was the Talawa Dine Nation. And um, I reached out to the cultural department and, and I said, you know, I, I'm coming, I'm on my way. And, and they said, okay, we'll send over your materials. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I didn't have any materials. Um, Matika, we're going to have to take a break. I'm sorry, but when we come back, I want to hear this whole story when you first approached this tribe in California and just all these adventures. You went all all over Alaska. You went as far as Hawaii, and you had this really cool uh, RV type of vehicle <laughs> from the pictures on social media. It looked like you kind of went in style a little bit. So definitely lots more to talk about with you, but we're going to have to take a short break. So we'll be right back. Native voices are on both sides of the recent ban on oil and gas drilling near Chaco Canyon National Monument. The area is both sacred land and a source of revenue and jobs for Navajo citizens. We'll look at the latest development that weighs on the balance of oil and environmental rights on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. You can find our show live on your radio, of course, but you can also listen live on the NV1 app for Apple and Android devices. You can access the entire lineup of NV1 shows, including Native America Calling. Find it at the App Store on your mobile phone. We're speaking now with Matika Wilbur about her new work, Project 562. Are you following Matika's photographic journey? Let us know. 1-800-996-2848. That number again is 1-800-996-2848 if you'd like to speak with Matika Wilbur. Matika, before break, you were talking about this tribe in, in Northern California that you approached, and I believe I read you kind of buttered them up a little bit with some sweets. Oh, I wouldn't say I buttered them up. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I just with with uh, all of the communities that I went to, I uh, brought gifts from home and 
salmon and you know, as just as we do as native people. <laughs> you offered a, a gift and they, they appreciated it, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, okay, so you're traveling around uh, so many different parts of the country, like I mentioned, in Alaska, Hawaii, and in addition to these photographs and all these people that you met, cool communities, I mean, what about you just personally? What did it, what kind of impact did that have on your life? Did it change you? Uh, I also want to acknowledge the song that you just met, that you guys just played. That, that song comes from Swinomish, um, from my, mm-hmm. my mom's tribe. And it's a blessing song that they sing for the people. It's pretty cool to hear that song being played. Yeah. I don't know if you guys often like talk about the origins of the songs that you play, but you know, usually in, on our territories here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't sing other people's songs without acknowledging who sang them. <laughs> so okay, all right. Well, so I appreciate you mentioning cool. that and, and making that known. I will say, Matika, that. So not everybody that listens to this show, not every station hears that break music. So we, we're kind of careful about referencing it when we do the show. But I appreciate those insights, and we'll certainly keep that in mind moving forward, okay? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the project, uh, yeah, it took 10 years. It, it definitely, everything changed. Um, you know, everything that I was... Uh, everything about me changed and, you know, it just like it, people change in 10 years time anyway. <laughs> but mm. I certainly uh, learned a lot from, from many different people across, across Indian country. And uh, I went to go, I got to go to lots of different ceremonies and, um, and, you know, it certainly impacted me. Mm-hmm. And along the way you found love. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I um, towards the end of the journey, I met my husband, Lino, and uh, we got married. We had a baby. Yeah. Her wow. name's Alma B. Congratulations. And how old is she now? She's three now. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit more, Matika, about uh, the audience for the book, because obviously, you know, this really resonates with Native people, the pictures, but... Um, who are you really hoping reads this book and, and takes it home and, and really gets something out of it? Who's the, the ideal audience? Well, the book was written, I think, for Native people. I, I, uh, I made a lot of conscious decisions to, to not explain a lot of um, concepts that I know Native people would understand. Um, which was an interesting, an interesting process with my editor, uh, who's a non-native. You know, as we would, <clears throat> as we were going through the book and and trying to decide which 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 concepts needed parentheticals or more context. And so I did really, I did, I made a lot of conscious choices to write the book for native people. Um, that doesn't mean that non-native people, however, cannot benefit from. From uh, reading the book, so I think uh, that all of us have to reconcile our relationship with whose indigenous land we live on, and and come to know the place-based identity of the place that we live, and, and you know, be in better kinship with the indigenous people of, of our territory. Mm-hmm. 
Now, who are some of the people that you met, some of the people that you photographed, the subjects that you just found uh, particularly inspiring or interesting that you'd like to share today with us on the air? Well, you know, I met a lot of really great people. Did you did you read the book, or did you did you have any questions about any of the people specifically, or do you want me just to? How yeah, long I mean, just some... to talk for before you cut me off. No, no, just talk as long as you'd like. I mean, I, I do know some of the subjects. I know Henrietta Mann was on the cover. I saw Jerry Wolf from the Eastern Band of Cherokee, who was a, an elder that I, I knew well before he passed on, and some other folks as well. Some young people, uh, Jolie Queen, who was photographed. I know her grandparents quite well. So, but no, but oh, I want yeah, you to talk, great. please, please, please share. Okay, how much time do we have? We've got about another ten minutes or so. Okay. Well. You know, yeah, Dr. Henrietta Mann, who's on the cover, was um, is an incredible woman. She was just given uh, a, an award uh, recognized recognized by President Biden, given a National Endowment of the Humanities for uh, you know her work that she done in Indian education, and she really, to me, is an incredible matriarch in the sense that she worked for so long and. Uh, to overcome, you know, her own history with boarding schools and and then, you know, going through education herself and being a teacher and working, fighting really hard to make sure that uh, Indian education, that American Indian studies is taught in universities across the country. So she really, um, and she really is just kind of a really lovely person. Like when you spend time with her, you feel really good. And so that was um, really meaningful to me. To get to spend time with her, and then um, another person that I met and photographed in the book is uh, Helen, Helena, and Preston Arrowweed, who are Quetzal and Kumiai. And you know, when I met them, they were um, trying to oppose these wind farms out in Quechan territory, and they invited me to come and sit out in the desert with them and sit up and pray with them through the night. And um, and then I got to go to you know, they listen to their kumiai songs, their bird songs all night long and go to their kumiai practices. And, and uh, eventually, you know, like, eventually they, they built those wind turbines uh, right on top of, like, their ancestral burial grounds. And so that was, like, deeply devastating to the people. And, and just like we learned at Standing Rock or, like, we see in Seminole Country or with Line 3 or with coal ports in the Pacific Northwest, we... We realize that you know modernization and the work that's being done for oil has an impact on indigenous people's access to land and thereby access to identity. Uh, so that was kind of a big realization for me with uh, Helena and Preston. And then, you know, I also got to meet folks like. Um, um, Gail Small who's uh, Northern Cheyenne, mm-hmm. and uh, Gail, Gail is like one of those aunties that just really, uh, is, you know, really does a lot to, for the protection of Indigenous women, like she litigated for years to protect Native women, but she also worked against uh, the coal strip out there in Montana, and her community came together and they couldn't afford the attorneys to fight the coal strip. But so they decided instead to invest in their young people and send them to law school, <laughs> which I just thought was like such an incredible 
move on the elders part in Cheyenne country to say to themselves, like, you know what, we know that we're going to be fighting this in the long term. Let's just develop the infrastructure we need in our own community to protect ourselves. And nice. and then, of course, her daughter, Dr. Dr. Desi Small, came on my podcast, and we've, we've remained friends. And she's, you know, uh, does, she just, like, um, she has this data warriors lab. So she she's a statistician, and she works to use data for our indigenous communities. And then, I, you know, I also met, like, like people like the 1491s, um, you know, and I've known them for a long time, but since before then, and, and got to be part of the journey as, you know, like they developed reservation dogs and, and between two knees and, and what, you know, like we all kind of came up together through the YouTube era. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's, there's also a lot of folks that, um, you know, like in media and representation, Frank Wong. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and then there's a lot of people in the book that um, are fighting for two spirit rights. You know, Jamie Go Thomas is in the book and Miko talks about, um, the development of the two-spirit powwow and how it's necessary for our indigenous communities to create safe spaces for our two-spirit relatives. And, you know, in the book, there's several essays. There's an essay um, about protecting indigenous women, about canoe journey, about indigenous women hike, uh, and sort of these longer form uh, essays where I, I add a little context. Right, right, yeah. Good stuff. Matika, I also want to ask you about, there were a lot of images from folks in Alaska, and, you know, we have a lot of listeners in the state of Alaska, by the way, and um, I I know it's not easy to travel up there. It's not easy just getting on a road and driving. So what was that like, visiting some of those villages up there? Uh, Yeah, I went to to Nome, and I went to Barrow, and, and then from there I would go out to the different villages. You know, you have you have to fly into those places. And uh, I went on a canoe journey in southeast Alaska, and we paddled the celebration. We started in Kikwan and went to Angoon and other Clinket villages. Um, I went to, uh, well, I went to all of the major territories in Alaska. So I made several trips to Alaska, both when it was snowing and when it was summertime. <laughs> yeah, and I I um I think that the drive up through like. Uh, the Yukon and up through to like the Copper River when I went to like the um, Teatla Dene communities, like that, that was one of the most beautiful drives I've ever been on. I I love going to Alaska. In fact, I was trying to talk my husband into moving there. <laughs> there <laughs> you go. It's one of the most beautiful places. Yeah. Yeah. How long were you in Hawaii? I, I've been to Hawaii a number of times I um, for the project and um I have a really good friend who's in the book. Um, his name is Josh Mori. And actually, we became friends through the project. Um, I called him on the phone and said, hey, I'm coming out there, and I, wanna, I want to, um, you know, I'm doing this project. And he had just finished his master's dissertation about representation. So he was really um, supportive of the work. And he introduced me to Ka'eo to and to Uncle John, um, you know, Kalo farmers and language teachers and and, you know, over the years, we've stayed in touch. I've helped him with the formation of Ibikua, which is a nonprofit that teaches uh, foundational skills to young Native Hawaiians and does an, uh, an immersion program and also a, a, a non-immersion program, a, um, a transfer program. So, like, the students can come to Montana and Native students from Montana can go to Hawaii. And then we also brought students here on canoe journey. 
And so, you know, we had this incredible um, relationship with, with working with kids. And, and, and so I, I went a bunch of times for that. And um, also, you know, when uh, we did a story on our podcast about the protection of Mauna Awakea. And so when the protests were happening in Mauna Kea, uh, we went for that also and, and developed a story about that. Multiple trips there to Hawaii. That sounds just so fascinating. And for listeners that are interested in reading the book or purchasing Project 562, Changing the Way We See Native America, what's the best way to go about that, Matika? Oh, well, you know, of course, I, I would say support a local indigenous bookstore. You know, I think that's always the, um, you know, like our road to sovereignty is, includes economic um, development. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, there's a number of indigenous-owned bookstores in the United States. Birchbark Books is one of them. And you can get the book from them, but you can also, uh, here in, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I have signed copies at Elliott Bay Bookstore. Uh, or you can get it, you know, like on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever it is that you buy books, you know. Okay. And what's next? What What's your next project? What are you working on? What are you excited about? I'm working on, on another book. It's, it's, a book about, um, it's a book about indigenous parenting. There isn't, there aren't any books about indigenous parenting, which I didn't realize until I became a parent and went to the bookstore and trying to find, I mean, maybe there are books, but they're not published. You you can't find them on the shelf at like major bookstores. (laughs) So uh, maybe there's, you know, books being published about indigenous parenting, but certainly not by trade publishers. And so I found that very uh, disturbing. And so I'm working on that right now with with, uh, some of my uh, moms from my indigenous moms group, you know, I've been from from that process of listening to them over the last two years over the pandemic, started to realize like that we have a lot of different ways that we approach parenting, uh, you know, like decolonized parenting and, and those ideas deserve to be a part of the public consciousness. So I'm working on that and uh, I'm working with Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who's a social scientist. So we're we're adding a little bit of data to the book. You know, because there's a lot of these studies haven't been done, which is in itself is an injustice. Um, and then I'm also working on a book about the ethics of indigenous photography methods and uh, working with uh, working with my friends. And I, I belong to this organization called Indigenous Photograph uh, that is, works with a bunch of indigenous photographers from around the world uh, with my friend Josue. And so we're thinking through you know, like how white supremacy and colonization has impacted the way that we tell stories in the ways that we believe in ideas like intellectual property um, and the way that we produce stories, you know, and how we might do that in a better better way, in a way that's rooted in our, in our traditional belief system. Matika, really exciting stuff here. I'm especially excited about the indigenous parenting book as a, a parent of a young child myself. I, did, I had never thought about that, but you're absolutely right that we don't have indigenous parenting manuals out there on the shelf. So really looking forward to that. And we're going to have to take a break and our time with you is done, but I just want to thank you again for joining us, Matika, and congratulate you on all your success and best of luck moving forward. Okay. Thanks so much.
You bet. You bet. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And folks, uh, we're going to take a short break here, but uh, and we switch gears when we get back, and we're going to talk uh, about this issue up in Montana with the TikTok ban that was recently passed there by the governor. We're going to have another guest on the show who's going to fill us in on some of those details. And anybody who's got a comment or a question, our phone lines are open right now, so just give us a call, one 800 996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling, and our phone number is 1-800-996-2848. Of course, you can always comment on our social media channels as well, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we've got all that going on, so feel free to post, to comment, to like. Engage with us here at Native America Calling. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. This Father's Day, you can give your dad a truly unique gift from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at AECF.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're going to switch gears now and discuss a different perspective regarding digital photography and its impact on Native people and issues. But before we do that, we do have a caller on the line who wants to comment on, on photography up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. And listeners, I think you know his voice well, Chanupa in Pine Ridge. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. You know, it's great that you guys are talking about photography and a lot of the photographers that did a lot of work in the indigenous community. Two individuals came to Pine Ridge. One, his name is Laurent Oliver. He's from France. The other one was John Willis out of Vermont. <laughs> and there's been many others that came, contributed, took pictures, and they gave a broken promise to my elders and the families, and they never returned. But Laurent Oliver and John Willis, they keep coming to bring back the books and the DVDs they've made that go with the book with all the photography that they accomplished here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The lady was talking about, you know, her involvement, you know, in Alaska. I have an adopted brother up there. He's from the Simpson Reservation, but he's originally from the Kiwakwan people. And when I was in Alaska, I got pictures taken with a lot of the stuff going on there. And that's the very first time I ever seen our indigenous people plant, you know, some watermelons that were so huge, they were bigger than a basketball. Mm -hmm. That's how rich the soil is up there because it's never been tilled, never been turned over. So it's naturally great. So we took pictures of them. And brought those watermelon pictures back. They said, you're kidding me. I said, no, it's because of the way everything is over there. So I went there with John Willis. And I was going to ask that young lady if she knew of him because he still keeps coming back to Pine Ridge. Him and uh, Laurent Oliver. That was the question I wanted to give her. And I really thank you for doing this work of getting prestigious people that know 
about the lay of the land because she did mention we like Hosea people in the talk with you. And I'm I'm really blessed with that. Wopila to you, Sean, for your ever continuous work of sharing our understandings. Wopila, ha'o. Uh, Chanupa, you don't know what those kind words mean to me. And I'm really glad you, you enjoyed that last guest, uh, Martika Wilbur. Unfortunately, she's she's no longer on the line, but uh, maybe she'll get that message. Maybe she'll hear a rebroadcast of the show. It's Chanupa listening up in Pine Ridge. And uh, let's get back now to this Montana TikTok ban. Uh, Montana now the first state to officially ban the social media app tip TikTok. Montana Governor Greg Gianforti, he called the platform a significant risk and cited privacy concerns because of its ties to China. So let's hear now from a native TikTok creator and their thoughts on the band. And with that, I'd like to introduce from Bozeman, Montana, Victoria Cheyenne. She is a film director and TikTok creator. She is Northern Cheyenne and Aymara. Victoria, great to have you on the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to to talk with you more and find out what's going on in Montana. Now, this Montana TikTok ban has got a lot of headlines recently. What has you the most concerned? Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest concerns I have is that it's just bad for business here in Montana, you know. Particularly when I went down to um, when I went to Helena, spoke at the Capitol. Um, I traveled with my dear friend Shauna White Bear. She runs a business, White Bear Moccasins, which, you know, she gets a large majority of her business through TikTok. You know, I think Indigenous peoples all across, like beyond just the United States, have been able to access a larger, broader community via TikTok and. Banning it is just, you know, completely disregarding, you know, our freedom of speech. Uh, So it has me very concerned about what that means and how that's going to limit the ability for these amazing creators who found the platform on TikTok to be able to reach more people. Now, Victoria, you spoke before the Montana State Legislature against the ban on TikTok. How was your testimony received? Uh, you know, it was a hard room to be in. Um, when I when I went to fight against SB 419, um, the TikTok ban, and spoke against the bill, I kind of highlighted the fact that uh, as an entertainment worker, someone who you know was working at Paramount, which like for example puts so much money into the economy here in Montana for productions like Yellowstone. And I'm, my creating on TikTok has allowed me to reach students out here, creators, artists, filmmakers, and it's kind of been the baseline of how I've connected with people and hired people, but also just found collaborators. So I kind of highlighted those points. And uh, in general, it, there was a large Republican presence, and the focus was mostly on setting a foot forward and being the first to ban TikTok, um, since it is being discussed on a federal level, um, and creating a, that example. And obviously, with a Republican majority, um, it was very easy for it to pass. I, there was a very small number of people who were uh, testifying uh, in opposition to the bill, which is really unfortunate. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, most of the people who were testifying against it were also just like natives from Montana. So my friend Shauna White Bear, um, Keegan Madrano, um, who's the policy director at the ACLU, um, kind of highlighting the way that it's going to have impacts. I think it's mostly very fear-mongering centered and 
this idea of TikTok being big privacy concerns. But I mean, if you're going to spread, you know, a rope that big, you're also talking about like all social media is all getting your data in that same way. Fear mongering. It's interesting you use that choice of words because I, I want to ask you, you know, the governor is saying it's this huge security risk and there's all these concerns about China. And do you share any of those concerns? Or do you think it's just all overblown? I think a lot of it is overblown. I think any anyone uh, who wants your data can get your data at this point. Um, we live in like a tech-centric world where, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these other platforms are already harvesting your data. Um, I think the, the fear around TikTok is essentially based in racism and the fear around China is, you know, the biggest suppressor. If you want to talk about, like, the United States being such a different place from China, uh, that was one of the things I said during my testimony, which is that, you know, our freedom of speech here is what makes things so powerful. China is putting down, like, very specific guidelines and acts, limiting access um, to Internet and, like, different resources, social media platforms, the ability to express and talk about those things. And so by doing by doing something like banning TikTok, we're we're practicing the same suppression that happens in China. Um, and I just think that's counterintuitive. Well, Victoria, what are you going to do? Because you shared, I mean, this is a significant uh, part of your work using TikTok. And I mean, is this going to work? Is this banned? I mean, how how is it going to impact you? Can't, I mean, you can't download it from an app store in the state of Montana. I mean. Is there any workaround for you? Or are you pretty much just not going to be able to use TikTok going forward? I'm not worried. Um, and I think the reason I'm not worried is because I listened to those lawmakers speaking, and I think it was very clear that they lack basic fundamental understanding of how the Internet works and also how these social media platforms function. Um, you know, the sponsor of the bill, Shelley Vance, who's a Republican um, representative out of Belgrade, uh, she struggled to even just describe, you know, how Wi-Fi works in connection to being able to do things like, you know, uh, change, use a VPN to change your location um, to be outside of the state of Montana in order to download TikTok. The concept of like geofencing and being able to prevent people from downloading TikTok within the state of Montana is already facing like just so many technical obstacles. Um, and the writing in the bill is highlighting that it is the app store's responsibility to prevent people from downloading TikTok. But what if you already have TikTok downloaded? Mm. What if you open TikTok on your computer browser on your computer? Like, there's just so many ways that this has just not been thought out thoroughly. Uh, so it's supposed to go into effect of January of 2024, and I think it's going to be facing so many legal battles before then, just like I said before, as a freedom of speech violation. Uh, so I will be using TikTok for as long as I can and finding every workaround and way to fight back against it. Well, you mentioned how hard it's going to be for them to impose this ban. And what are they talking about in terms of potential penalties or repercussions for people that are using TikTok come January 2024 in Montana? Sure. So the way they've highlighted um, 
it, the plan around the TikTok ban is that individuals using TikTok uh, don't face any penalties. The responsibility falls exclusively on application stores for whatever kind of mobile device you use. Um, and it is their apparent responsibility in order to abide by Montana state law to prevent people from downloading that app, the application um, onto their phone in the state of Montana, if they're in the state of Montana. Um, what that means is there's no nobody who just has TikTok and uses it in Montana can get in trouble, in theory, for every person that downloads it. Uh, it's a violation and a strike, which is a fine that would be imposed on those app stores and those, those businesses. Um, again, I don't even comprehend the way that they're planning on tracking that, determining all of those things, and if it's even enforceable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's really going to be an uphill battle going forward. Well, Victoria, tell us a little bit more about the videos that you post to TikTok now, and, and why does the platform work so well for what you do? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a documentary filmmaker for the most part, and that involves just direct community work. And um, my focus in the work that I do is like reciprocity. And so when I'm creating and I'm able to share the content that I make and tell stories, I want to be able to give that back. So a lot of the work that I do and the things that I post is education-based. I want to empower young people, particularly like young Native uh, creatives who want to go into this film industry, film and television, to believe that they can do that and that they have access to that. And with things like film school being ridiculously expensive, it can feel completely inaccessible. Um, so I use TikTok as a platform to be able to provide free education and support to a community and also be able to interact with that community. I'm able to like talk about how I've gotten jobs in the past and how I broke into the industry. And then I'm able to respond to comments and I've been able to do live streams where I review people's resume and give feedback, connect to people with others, to help them get jobs. Um, it's, it's led all the way to, you know, now I'm working with Nia Taro, which is, I'm really excited for. Um, they have a phenomenal uh, program um, called Kin Theory, which is a website in which if you are Native or you want to hire Natives who work in the film industry, you can go on there and find a really easy platform to hire camera operators, cinematographers, you know, writers, the people that you want to hire um, right there. And it creates a space for that. So now I'm able to take that to another level where I can encourage and give people another platform where they can um, find jobs and people have no more excuses to not hire native on their productions. And Victoria, compared to other social media platforms where a person can share video content, for example, YouTube or Facebook Live, does TikTok work better for you than all those alternatives? I think so. And I think it works better for like all indigenous people, frankly. Uh, I have seen the way that the algorithm works highlight far more Native creators than I ever saw on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I mean, if you look at all the biggest Native influencers out there right now, all of them started on TikTok. Um, they found a space on TikTok. And yes, that following then followed them to other spaces like YouTube or Instagram. But the actual like native talk, like the, the universe that was created on TikTok is a very specific community that has 
allowed a lot of people to learn and be excited and get more eyes and insight into um, our experience, our culture, our life, you know, everyone who's from people who are posting videos, throat singing to fancy dancing to, you know, more modernized, like, you know, I follow like native rock bands and um, all these different people who I've been able to connect with who I would have never met otherwise, um, who have also become friends in real life through TikTok. And I absolutely never found that on any other social media platform. I think that's special. I think it's unique. And TikTok itself has done a really great job of highlighting indigenous creators. Um, you know, once again, my friend Shauna, she has been kind of the face of this campaign fighting against the TikTok ban. You know, TikTok has put up, um, you know, billboards uh, of her business all around because it's important to know, like, her business highlights that anyone can wear these modern moccasins that she makes. And that uh, TikTok has allowed her to reach an audience of both Native people all over the place, but also non-Natives who are like, hey, can I wear these? And they can because they are designed for everyone. Um, and I love that she's been able to reach people in that way. And it would just be such a shame if losing TikTok kept um, people from discovering this and supporting Indigenous businesses. Mm. Well, Victoria, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, but I, I want to thank you for joining us and giving this, giving us this update here with regard to the TikTok ban in Montana. And before we go, though, what is the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up to date with what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, you can follow me on TikTok. Um, my handle is at film by Victoria. That's also my username on Instagram. Uh, my latest documentary film is called Learning I'm Home, and it follows Indigenous students um, at Montana State University coming together and finding community. Uh, so if you want to check that out, you can find me on Instagram or TikTok. And thank you so much for talking with me. It was so lovely to get to talk about all of this. Absolutely. Thank you as well, Victoria. And also to our first guest, Matika Wilbur. Join us next week for another lineup of enlightening conversations about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. And the president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Stay safe out there and have a good weekend. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.